The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. So let's turn to Galatians 1, 1 to 5, and I'll just read this for you. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's read a little farther. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received... Let him be accursed. So Paul, this letter written sometime uh, between Acts 14 and Acts 15. The reason I had Steve read you Acts 14 is you hear about southern Galatia. Galatia was a a, a people group that were uh, Celtic in origin. So they probably had migrated from France east into northern Asia, northern modern-day Turkey, where that's at, and there was an ethnic group of Celts that were known as Galatians, but then the Roman Empire in there, as they expanded and grew, they, they created provinces so that they could place their Roman legions in a convenient manner, especially on the border uh, provinces, and so they created the province of Galatia uh, right before Paul's time. And so it actually covered this area that was more than ethnic Galatia. It was also uh, these cities that we heard about of Iconium and Lystra and Derby. And uh, Paul's first missionary journey when he went with Barnabas, he went through southern Galatia and he planted these churches. And then in Acts 15, there's the Jerusalem Council, which speaks of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles in southern Galatia and how they turned to Christ And the discussion over, do they have to now become uh, Jews? Do they have to participate in Jewish mosaic law-keeping? And and the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council is, no, in fact, the Jews are saved the same way the Gentiles are, by grace, through faith, plus nothing. And so Paul writes the book of Galatians, actually, to this southern Galatian area, and it's his first epistle, After he saved, it's some 15 or 16 years after he became a Christian, he writes this first epistle, and you can tell that he's very passionate. Apparently, he'd received a report that was quite startling to him, that the people in Galatia at these churches, so Galatia is not a city, it's a a province, it's like saying uh, California, or uh, it was definitely big enough to be considered like a state in the Roman Empire. And so all of these churches and all these cities, he's writing this circular letter that he had planned on it going around to all these churches. And he's startled because he had heard that they're changing their mind about the gospel. They're changing their mind about the gospel and they're changing their mind about Paul. We're going to see later in chapter 1. 
fact, they were coming to embrace a, a different gospel, a different kind of justification. Rather than by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, Paul says to them, back in verse 7 of chapter 1, there is not another gospel, but there's some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. So they were being urged to turn. In fact, look over at chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? They were being encouraged to turn to the law for perfection, to be perfected by the flesh rather than by the Spirit of God. Turn over to chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. He says you're urged to accept circumcision back in chapter 4, verse 10. You're urged to accept honoring Jewish days and seasons. He says... You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I might have labored over you in vain. And so he's bringing to them very serious charges. He says, you are not understanding the gospel that came from Jesus Christ, the good news. You're not understanding this word he's going to use over and over called justification. Now this this word justification, dikaiao in the Greek, it means to declare or pronounce righteous. It's courtroom language. It's the language of verdict. It's the language of, as a judge were to sit on a courtroom and say, you are guilty or you are not guilty, or there's this third category of you are righteous, right? Our courts say guilty or not guilty, but they don't actually confirm that you are in fact doing the right thing and declared righteous. This word dikaiao is a stronger word than even not guilty. It's the language of saying you are pronounced righteous, Declared righteous in the sight of the king, the judge, the lawgiver. What a glorious thought that we who are sinners, because of Christ's finished work on the cross, because he delivered us from our sins, and simply because we've embraced him by faith, we are declared righteous. This is the good news of Christ. It's not because of something we've done, we don't earn his favor. We don't earn his love. Because the Father loved us, we're going to see in these first five verses, because he has set his plan into motion from eternity past and sent his son to pay for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age, we are declared righteous. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, his perfect son, This is the good news. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is what drove Martin Luther in his study of Galatians to put up his 95 theses against the Roman church, which is what ended up launching the Reformation. Because he saw that a person is not justified by their works. They're not declared righteous They're not made righteous by what they do. Rather, they're declared righteous by what Christ has already done by simply embracing that by faith. In fact, Luther would say, this is my book. I'm betrothed to it. It is my wife. 
And Luther's influence was incredible. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, the great Baptist uh, nonconformist Puritan who spent much of his ministry in jail because he was determined to preach the gospel uh, in the fields outside of Anglican pulpits when uh, the government in England said you had to be licensed by the state and it was called the Act of Uniformity. And John Bunyan said, I'm going to preach Christ to my congregation. And he went to jail for it. And he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. But speaking of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians that Luther wrote on this book, he said this is, this is what affected him so greatly when he was in jail. When he was in prison, he read this. And the fact that he was uh, so taken by this doctrine of justification by grace alone. Through faith alone in Christ alone. This, this spurred him on. Uh, Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, brother to John Wesley, was converted reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And so this book of Galatians is of utmost importance. This is an epistle for, this is a letter for recovering Pharisees, of which you and I are in that camp, most likely. It's hard for Pharisees to leave behind their legalism. They've received the free gospel of grace. They secretly suspect that God's love is conditional and it depends on how they behave. And you know what? This is our default switch. And this is our default switch when we think that, when we think, oh yeah, we're saved by grace, but you know what? In order to remain in God's love, in order for God to be happy with us, we better live up to his law and we better do what he says so that he'll listen to us and be and will be accepted by him you see and so paul's writing this to 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 as an antidote to legalism eve in the garden she was living out of this severing of the law of god from the person of god see and that's where legalism starts when we begin to say, I don't necessarily want a relationship with a person. I just want a list of do's and don'ts. Give me a new law. Give me a rule that I can follow. And if I can check all those boxes, then I'll be happy with my life. But that's not religion. That's not Christianity. That's not relationship with the true and living God. And so I tend to think this is our default switch. I tend to think that what we tend to do in our lives is we we justify our own condition before God by how we're living rather than what Christ has done. What do I mean by that? Well, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I'm spending time with my wife and loving my kids, well, then I'm doing really good. I've checked those boxes. God must be happy with me. And if I'm not doing those things, then God must be unhappy with me. And I live my life based upon that list. Rather than thinking, no, the only reason I'm accepted by God the Father is because Jesus Christ went to the cross. The only reason God is happy with me is because he loved me before I was saved. He sent his son to die for me. And by union with Christ, because I believed upon him, now the father, when he looks at me, he sees the finished work of his son. And he takes great delight in me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. And now my living and now my obeying and now my holiness is not in order to please God in the sense of in order to be declared righteous by him, in order to find my approval by him. Rather, it's a response to the fact that I've been declared righteous. 
I live out of who I already am instead of trying to earn God's favor. This is why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. So the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 is that this gospel message, it is a message from the delivered to the delivered. What do I mean by that? It's from the delivered Paul. He was delivered from being a persecutor to being an apostle. He says in first 1, Paul, an apostle. And if you know the life of Paul, those two words are an incredible act of grace. Because the Apostle Paul in the early chapters of Acts, when you read it, you see he tried to destroy the church of God. He persecuted it. He wanted to stamp out anybody who followed Jesus. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He was holding the clothes, giving his approval. He got a special commission from the Jewish council, the the religious leaders, to go and persecute Christians. And he was chasing them down in every city and exposing them. And he was determined, as he says here in Galatians, to destroy the church of God. And yet you remember what happened. He's on his donkey, on the road, heading to kill Christians. And the Lord Jesus appears to him and knocks him off that donkey. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord, that I'd be persecuting me? Right? He didn't think, he didn't think that this, this one who appeared to him had anything to do with these Christians who he believed were a bunch of heretics. He said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting, but now you're going to be my witness. You're going to be my apostle and you're going to go to the Gentiles and you're going to bring this gospel to them. And in a moment, Paul was changed from a persecutor of the church to an apostle. An incredible act of grace. That's why Paul says, This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, he writes to Timothy. He says, Christ came into the world to save sinners of which I am chief. I'm foremost so that in me, the grace of God might be made manifest. What he means is in him, because of that, because God has saved Paul, he can save any of you. He was the chief of sinners. He was the worst one. And I don't think he was using that as hyperbole. I think he believed he was the worst sinner on the planet in all of human history because he tried to destroy the church of God. And God saved him as an example that if he can save the apostle Paul, he can save any of anyone. He can save any of us. And you haven't out-sinned the grace of God. If you're alive today and breathing, you have not out-sinned the grace of God. There is salvation available to you in Christ. And so he says Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, just a little bit of trivia here. Paul, the reason why he has the name Saul and the name Paul is because as a Roman citizen, he would have had um, a Roman name, and that was his name, Paul. But when he was called for supper by his mother, he was probably called Saul, which is his Jewish name. But the boys in the neighborhood probably called him Paul. So this isn't like Simon who was renamed to Peter or Abram who was renamed to Abraham. Paul had two names. He had a Roman name, Paul, and he had a Jewish name, Saul. And so in the early chapters of Acts, when he's ministering to to the Jewish tabernacles and synagogues, he goes in, the, the synagogues, he goes in and he uses the name Saul. But later when he has his ministry to the Gentiles, to the Roman Empire, 
He uses the name Paul. And so he's writing to Galatia and he says, Paul. And he writes an intensely personal letter. He founded these churches. He planted them. And as Frank could tell you, when you plant a church, you have, they're like, it's like one of your children. It's, it's something that you have an affection and you have um, a passion for that church more than someone who comes in later. And Paul says, I, I planted you guys. I, I founded them. I visited you. I consider you children, he says in chapter 4, verse 19. He says, my little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, he writes to them. And so when he hears that they're, they're veering off into legalism and trying to accept this message from these Judaizers, he is agitated. He's emotional. In fact, this introduction is the only introduction in all of his epistles where he doesn't pray. He gives the introduction. And then in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished at you. I cannot believe what I'm hearing. How you so quickly are turning to another gospel. He's emotional if you read throughout, and we don't have time to do it, but we're going to see it over the weeks, that, that he is very agitated, he's emotional, yet throughout he sees them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's not uh, forsaking them, he's not casting them off, he deeply loves and is concerned about them until Christ is formed in them. And I think the reason he says not from men nor by men but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, is because these religious leaders that had come in, these Judaizers, they had attacked his character. The one way to deny the truthfulness of a message is to deny the authority of the one who gives it. And they had attacked Paul's character, they had attacked his message, and they said, if you want to be really spiritual, like, yeah, Paul gives a good gospel, but if you want to be really spiritual, you need to go back and keep the Jewish Sabbaths and days and be circumcised. That's, that's the upper deck of the Christian spiritual experience. That's the upper echelons and the upper realms. And this idea of two-tier Christianity is not new. This, is, this has been going on from the beginning. You see, uh, in the church that was persecuted after Paul's day, after the day of the apostles, as the Roman emperors began to persecute the church, the church began to hold up the martyrs as the super spiritual. And then when Constantine legalized Christianity in 321 and 322, what ended up happening was there were no more martyrs in the church, and so the super spiritual were those who became spiritual martyrs. They became monks. They gave up a life, a normal life, to go live a life of asceticism. And initially, they lived up on the top of pillars, stylite monks, but then they began to congregate in monasteries. And they were the ones who were considered the super spiritual. You had all the normal Christians, and then you had the super spiritual. And then as uh, history went on, you had the division between the, the clergy and the laity. And, and somehow the clergy had more ac- direct access to God because they were more spiritual. And even in our churches today, who would we would try to say, no, we don't hold to those things. I think the way we do it sometimes is the ones we think are the super spiritual are the missionaries. They're the ones that go out. They're the ones that that give up everything to go live in another country to do the work of Christ. And any time we fall into this two-tier Christianity, we're falling into a lie. You see, because we all are priesthood of believers. 
we all are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Declared righteous on the basis of that, not on the basis of what God's called us to. And so the book of Galatians is a remedy for that. It's a remedy for this idea that, oh yeah, I'm just a normal Christian, but if I look at so-and-so, they're a super Christian. No, if you've been saved by Christ, you are a Christian who's indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Just like everyone else who's saved by grace through faith in Christ. And God is going to use you and he's going to bear fruit in your life. We're going to see it, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. That's not just for super spiritual Christians, that's for all Christians. And so Paul defends himself, even in the beginning, he says, I got my commission not from men, but from Jesus Christ himself and from God the Father. In fact, he spends the first two chapters showing how he received his gospel. And so he says, I was delivered from being a persecutor to being an apostle, and I brought you this gospel, and you were delivered from your sins, and you were brought into the family of Christ. And he says in verse 2, to, and, and all the brothers who are with me, Paul says, my message is not mine alone. I have a number of brothers who've heard this message, and they're my brethren. They're children of God just like I am. And he's going to, in Galatians 6.18, call the Galatian church brethren. So he's writing as a family member of the family of God, one family member to another. You see, this new family in Christ, all the brothers who are with him, this small group of faithful co-workers and evangelists and missionaries that are with him were saved by grace through faith in Christ. And so it validates his apostleship. It validates his message. And by calling his closest workers brothers, he demonstrates pastoral love and affection. And when he calls Galatians brothers, he demonstrates pastoral love and affection because even when they're being foolish, even when he rebukes them so strongly, he still thinks of them as his brothers and sisters in the Lord and he loves them. You see, in our day and age, I, I think this is important to understand because the minute we criticize something or we rebuke someone, the very first thought in our culture is that you're filled with hate. You're a bigot or you're a racist or you're filled with hate because you would dare say something contrary to what I believe or think. Proverbs says the wounds of a friend are faithful. Paul says, when you see a brother in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, lest you too be tempted and fall into the same temptation. See, confronting and, and showing love and saying, hey, I see you're going the wrong way and you're in sin, or I see you're believing the wrong thing and I want to help you see the truth of it. That's not hatred, that's love. That's love. And Paul here demonstrates it. He gives us a great example of how to rebuke and encourage and admonish someone in love. And I think we need to hear that because I don't know about you, but I don't like to confront people ever. I don't want to tell them they're wrong and help them to change. And, 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 and I would rather just, you know, have peace. But that's a false kind of peace that doesn't confront that's a false kind of peace that just acts like nothing happened. You have those kind of relationships where you blow up and, and, and there's something wrong and there's something between you, but then you just let time deal with it. I disappear for a couple of weeks and now I return and now I act like nothing happened. That's not biblical peace. 
It's simmering under the surface, ready to pop up again. For some of you, maybe your marriages are like that. You see, the gospel brings true peace where we can speak the truth to one another in love. We can rebuke, but do it in love because it's the loving thing to do. Paul says it's with the spirit of gentleness. We're not coming with a righteous, I'm better than you attitude, but no, I know I could be tempted to the same sin, the same mistake, and so I'm going to restore you in a spirit of gentleness so I'm not tempted. And so even these foolish Galatians are ones who are delivered. Now, verses 3 and 4, he says, the cross of Christ delivers from the evil of this world system. He writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father. These two words, grace and peace, comprehend in them everything that belongs to Christianity. Grace releases us from sin and peace makes the conscience quiet. Uh, Martin Luther, in his commentary, writes this about grace and peace. The two fiends that torment us are sin and conscience, but Christ has vanquished these two monsters and trodden them underfoot, both in this world and that which is to come. This the world does not know and therefore can teach no certainty of overcoming sin, conscience, and death. Only Christians have this kind of doctrine and are exercised and armed with it to get victory against sin, despair, and everlasting death. It is a kind of doctrine neither proceeding from free will nor invented by the reason or wisdom of man, but given from above. He says this is what grace and peace is all about. And Paul uses this combination of Greek and Hebrew greeting in their fullest Christian significance. Grace, the Father's gift in Christ. Peace, what results from Christ's work between God and man. And he says, this is grace to you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, this is how it comes. Who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself, emphasizing the voluntary nature of Christ's sacrifice. He wasn't a victim. He gave himself. He looked forward to the cross, Hebrews says, and he endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before him, Hebrews chapter 12. He says, in John 10, I give up my life willingly. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. No one takes it from me. And he gave himself, it says, for our sins. And there's a little preposition in the Greek here, huper, which is translated for, which is a wonderful preposition because it is the one constantly used in the New Testament to speak of this idea of substitution. He didn't just give himself for our sins like he was an example. He gave himself on behalf of us. That's what the word means. It's on our behalf. Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It's the same word, on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He says this is what Christ came to do. He came to give himself for our sins, on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he might bring us to God. This is what he did. (laughs) Luther would say to the devil, when the devil would tell him he was going to go to hell, Luther would say, no, I say, for I take refuge in Christ. He gave himself for my sins. 
He gave him, this is the verse he would quote. He gave himself for my sins on my behalf. And then he says, the effects of this giving are in order to deliver us. The effects of the cross, he was crucified to emancipate us, to release us from servitude, to deliver us. And this is a word that's not used often, but when it's used, it's this idea of breaking from bondage, releasing from captivity. He's delivering us. And he says he's delivering us from this present evil age. Turn over to John 17, 15. Jesus writes in his upper room discourse, he's actually not writing, he's praying. He's praying for Christians. And he says in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but what does he ask? That you keep them from the evil one. That's how he taught us to pray. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so when Paul writes, he's delivered us from this present evil age, he's not saying he's taking us out of the world, but rather he's keeping us in the world from the evil one. The one who owns this world, the God of this age, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. See, the world, this present evil age, is the totality of human life dominated by sin and opposed to God. And the deliverance that Paul is speaking of back in Galatians is not out of the material world, but out of the evil that dominates it. We don't have to be ruled by this world system anymore. We don't have to buy into their idea of success, their idea of happiness, their idea of security. We don't need to buy into it because now our eyes have been opened by Christ and we're delivered. And so we don't have to get on that hamster wheel. That goes nowhere. I had a hamster one time. Bought Gavin a hamster. It didn't last very long. I don't know what happened to the hamster. I can speculate, but it's probably not wise. One of the most mesmerizing things about a hamster is watching them run on that wheel. Because it goes fast. And they run miles and miles, but they go nowhere. Nowhere. In this present evil age, that's what it's like. You pursue success or you pursue fame or you pursue money or you pursue relationships or you pursue sex or drugs or whatever else it is and there is no deliverance. You're in bondage to it. There's no ultimate happiness. There's no ultimate joy. And Christ came to deliver us from all of that. And he's brought us into his kingdom And we're going to see the Trinitarian shape of it, that the Father, it's his will, right? It's according to the will of the Father. And in Galatians chapter 3, 2 and 3, and in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, he says it is accomplished and brought, the life is brought to us by the Spirit. And so all three members of the Godhead are at work to deliver us from this present evil age. And what is our response in verse 5? Our response ought to be worship. What does he say? This is according to the will of our God and Father, to whom, to him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's response to the cross, to the finished work of Christ, is praise. This is what he does over and over. To the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Romans 9, Romans 11. From him and through him and to him belong all things. To him be the glory forever and ever in the church. Amen. And so the gospel is not about us. 
It's about what the God, the Fa- what God the Father has done in Christ by the Spirit in us. And there's a Trinitarian shape to this praise. Um, I won't have you turn over there. I'll read it to you. Ephesians 2.18, Paul writes, Through him, that's Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. All three members of the Godhead, through Jesus, in the spirit, have access to the Father to worship him, to pray to him, to delight in him, to have relationship with him. There's a Trinitarian shape to it. And in in Ephesians, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 is speaking about this reconciliation in Christ that happens between Jew and Gentile. In the book of Galatians, he speaks of the same thing. He speaks of racial reconciliation. I think this is a word we need to hear. I can't help but see the news and read my Twitter feed and see how much racial tension there is in America And we as the church of God ought to be those who are examples of what real racial reconciliation looks like. Because Paul writes to the Galatians, we are one in Christ. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We are all saved by grace through faith in Christ plus nothing. And so you want to talk about racial tensions? Just speak to Jews and Gentiles. Jews thought everybody else who weren't Jewish were less than dogs. And the Gentiles considered the Jews untrustworthy and schemers and always after your money. And in these churches of Galatia, there was racial reconciliation. In the church of Christ, there ought to be racial reconciliation. In our church, it ought to be that way. And so we're going to look at that as well. Through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So there's this shape to worship. We worship the Father through Christ by the Spirit. We pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And yet they're all God and they're all equally worthy of worship. Basil the Great, who was an Eastern church father who lived back in the 4th century He said this, in in keeping this balance of worship, of of devotion to to the triune Godhead, he said, on the one hand, we worship, we, we give glory to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And on the other hand, we give glory to the Father with the Son together with the Spirit. Both are necessary in order to balance the equality of the divine persons while still worshiping each in their proper order. And so this is what we do. In church, we preach Christ to the glory of God the Father in the power of the Spirit by His grace. When we come to the table, we should think of this as a Trinitarian shape, right? We are to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and what He accomplished at the cross, but it should never be apart from the Father and the Spirit. Because God so loved the world, He sent His Son. And the reason we can take this table is we are indwelt by the Spirit of God and we're one with Christ. And so as we make Christ the center of our attention as we take this table, we ought to then give praise to the Father. Empowered by the Spirit. Thinking of how Christ accomplished all of this salvation, as we just heard, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And our response ought to be to praise God the Father 
Father, would you be pleased with our time now as we continue to worship, as we take the table, as we sing to you, as we pray to you, as we fellowship with one another. It is all an act of worship. And as we begin this book of Galatians, Father, I pray that it would make dramatic changes in our church. It would cause racial reconciliation and cause uh, relational reconciliation. I pray that it would deliver us from legalism or antinomianism, that we would have a confidence and a groundedness in the gospel that would cause us to live out of who we are in Christ rather than seeking your approval. Father, I pray that we would understand what real adoption looks like and that it would cause us to put hands and feet to our own love of our neighbors and it would cause many of us to get out of our comfort zone and show ultimate hospitality by adopting into our own families those who are needy. Father, do this work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.